LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host, Greg Moffat, and today we present part two of our interview with Frank Joseph, discussing megalithic mysteries and lost civilizations. If you missed part one, you can find it at LegalizeFreedom.com. That's Legalize-Freedom.com. The interview resumes as we discuss the amazing and mysterious construction techniques of the megalithic builders. In terms of construction techniques, we've talked about how amazing uh, some of the megalithic building feats are. Just literally when we stand before these things, we see the size of the stone blocks at some of these sites. People then worked out where they came from. And there's been all sorts of speculation over the years about how this might have been done. And we immediately think, of course, as with every dimension of this discussion we immediately think how do we do things today and if we were tasked with doing this the same thing now how would we set about it almost always we're immediately into problems because oh wow okay so as you mentioned earlier with Urgra this is plus 300 ton block how are we going to even quarry this in one piece never mind move it and there have been various attempts over the years particularly uh, connected with the great pyramid in Egypt to explain how this was done, all sorts of things, you know, putting the blocks on rollers, putting them on rafts, moving them down the river, hoisting into place using X, Y, and Z techniques. And even when people try to recreate, not just the Great Pyramid of Giza, but other sites as well, they try and recreate these feats, these techniques, and fail, people still generally in the mainstream of archaeology like to say, okay, well, it didn't work for us, but... We got part of the way there, so that's yeah, it's still how it was done. And even to say that we don't know how it was done, there's still some reluctance to take that position because, again, it's this admission that something was done that we can't, with all the technology available to us today, that we cannot do. So even just admitting, okay, you know, hands up in the air, you know, we cannot say how this was done. It's amazing. It is still done through gritted teeth. Well, the thing that's amazing about it most of all is are not even just the weights involved or quarrying it, which is miraculous in itself. What is astounding is the precision involved in aligning these stones and setting them up. There's, a, of course, a very well-known um, manufacturing engineer by Christopher Dunn in the United States, and he's devoted many years to examining especially um, the machining that was done in ancient Egypt. And he often uses the term that this is done, this particular angle or this relationship is done with the jeweler's precision. 
how on earth are you going to make something with a jeweler's precision that weighs a hundred tons? I'm referring specifically to a place in Egypt called the Serapeum. The Serapeum is this 328 foot long subterranean corridor in a place called Saqqara, about 19 or 20 miles south of Cairo. And it was found in 1850, 1851, something like that. And this underground site has 24 of these 100 ton stone boxes, granite boxes. And the insides of these boxes, each one of them is made from its own separate piece of granite that weighed over 100 tons. The insides are, the, the, the cornices are done with a drill, with a power drill. Obviously, it's impossible to do this <laughs> with a copper chisel or an antler bone or whatever the Egypt, Egyptologists say. And the precision inside these cornices could only have been done with a drill similar to a dentist's drill. But it would have to be a dentist's drill that would be powerful enough to work in diorite and granite. Well, that's something we do not have today. We're nowhere close and yet the ancients had that. And these 24 boxes are all identically machined with this kind of precision. It's astounding. And how these things were made, we are only just beginning to understand that they eclipsed everything that we understand. We, we can't know how they built their structures because we don't know how to build that kind of structure today. There was an interview on television with the chief architect of something called the Mall of America. It's the largest mall in the United States. It's a huge place. And he was asked uh, if he could rebuild the Great Pyramid. And he said, well, with the materials we have today, uh, maybe. But it would be cost prohibitive. Uh, and then he added, if I had to build it with the tools that the Egyptologists and the archaeologists tell us they have, I couldn't do it. It'd be impossible. There's no way I could build it. So that's kind of interesting coming from a construction engineer in charge of one of the largest structures in North America. Well, we but, look, at, look at what we're building today in terms of, and um, we're certainly building things today, some huge architectural projects have been taking place. I mean, you mentioned earlier about the Twin Towers can't remember when they were built, whether it was the 60s or fin maybe finished. Yeah, 60s, yeah. Well, we, we're not building anything to last. No, we're exactly. We're building things not, to not last because the planned obsolescence is important for generating new jobs and new investments. So we don't build for – we build junk on purpose. We build shod and inferior structures – specifically because that's part of the whole economic view that we have. We don't build for eternity. We're not interested in that. We're only interested in profit. That's it. And well, that's what we get. Thinking about some of the huge towers, you know, skyscrapers that are being constructed in Asia at the minute, well, in recent years, and even thinking about where I am here in the UK and in London, we've had the, the Gherkin uh, skyscraper, the Shard, now they proposed Tulip Tower. That's all fine and dandy. Stand that next to Stonehenge or the Great Pyramid of Giza, and it looks 
sort of almost more impressive in a way. But I'm th- in terms of materials, we're not really building with stone. You you're talking about cutting and about precision. It's just a sort of molded concrete, glass, steel, and what that, have you. So you mentioned concrete. The concrete we have today will last fifty on the outside, seventy years. Probably a lot less than that. I've had concrete repairs at my house that have not lasted five years. That's that's common. And yet the concrete that the Romans had is still in shape. It still exists. Their, their concrete has survived 2,000 and more years, and yet ours can't stand up for 50, 70 years, our Portland cement. They had concrete, and most people don't realize this, the Romans had concrete that would harden underwater. That's how they built their piers and their harbors. They developed a kind of a concrete, we have no idea how it was made, in which they could pour it into the water in forms, and it would only harden after time. Some of those pilings, like at Marseille, and these other Roman, and Ostia, these other Roman harbors, are still in good shape after more than 2,000 years. So, but we don't care, see. We're only interested in, you know, what, how we continue to keep uh, the employment rolling along, you know, and how do we keep the investment uh, keep coming in, that... But the Great Pyramid would appear, there is is one fellow, one theorist, who came up with a, a hypothesis on how at least part of the Great Pyramid may have been built, and it's it's the most convincing of all. Uh, the other stories about <laughs> uh, grass ropes and uh, long ramps, that's uh, a lot of hogwash. But this fellow's name was Edward Kunkel, and in 1950... He believed that it would have been possible to create the pyramid, the Great Pyramid, by building as its core a coffer dam. A coffer dam is, for our listeners not familiar with it, it is really a series of walls or dams and sluice gates that allow water to enter a specific area and you can raise and lower the level of the water. And the Great Pyramid so Kunkel believed, was built in this way, where you would get these quarried blocks and you would float them down the Nile, float them down a a, a canal into the coffer dam, and then you could raise the water and you could raise the block. And that is possible. You could have done that. You could have raised it and literally pushed the block into position. Now, that's that's a possibility. That's, That's some genius behind that. Uh, that would account for the precision that you find at the Great Pyramid. So rather than just hefting these 70-ton blocks through the air on a, an impossible ramp or even a crane of some kind, that's without having a, a chip or a mar on any of these blocks. Uh, but putting them into precision by floating them on a coffer dam, raising them on a dam, that's possible. The unfortunate thing is, uh, for this theory, is that the Great Pyramid is too big for that to have worked. You can get a coffer dam up at most, probably a little less than halfway as high, but you're not going to get a coffer dam 481 feet in the air. I'm sorry, <laughs> that's, you can't, that's not going to work. So it's possible that a coffer dam was used to create the first few heavy courses of the Great Pyramid. And how they got the rest of it done. That's anybody's guess. That's that's a technology that 
we don't possess. Well, I want to ask you a, a question here about sound, and you probably know where I'm going with this. Just before I yeah. do that, I want to recommend a couple of shows that I've done relating to um, archaeoacoustics, basically, you know, the, the how things, the role of sound in the past, how different the past sounded compared to our modern society. Uh, the two shows, one is with Gary Evans, that's entitled Listening to the Past. The other one with Paul Devereaux, that's called oh. Stone Age Soundtracks. You'll find those at LegalizeFreedom.com. Just, you know, stick any of those terms into the search box and you'll find them. But one theory that I've seen more than once regarding uh, the moving of megalithic stone blocks during that period of history was sound levitation. And a lot of people's initial reaction to that will be just incredulity, like, what are you talking about? But the interaction between sound and material objects is extremely interesting. And we, we already know that, that, that in our current day and age that sonic weapons exist, you know, that sound can have a very deleterious effect on organic matter and... It can certainly have an effect. You know, think of like high frequency notes shattering glass. And I just wonder whether you've uh, encountered or looked into in the past theories of sonic levitation with regard to um, how some of these uh, architectural feats of the past might have been achieved. Well, you mentioned Paul Devereaux. I believe that Paul Devereaux is one of the most important researchers in the world today. I think his work has been just absolutely uh, breakthrough type of research and he's just done very invaluable stuff very credible work he's done a lot of hands-on labor and i just can't uh, say enough about him i think he's just just terrific i've always had a great deal of admiration for uh his work in this regard specifically that you mentioned about acoustics which has pretty much been overlooked you mentioned of course acoustic cannons um even today they have acoustic uh drills and, and and hammers and so forth. So this is not anything that is as far out as skeptics might believe. I mean, there are applied sonics today in construction and in the military. We know that. Um, there's an interesting myth that is found in various parts of the world. It's found in North America, in Wisconsin. I've heard it repeated in this part of the world. The same myth is repeated in Polynesia. And it's also repeated in parts of Northern Europe. And that myth is that when anthropologists have asked indigenous peoples about some of these outstanding megalithic achievements, how were they built? How were they made? And a kind of mythic response has been that they were sung into position, that they were accompanied with choruses of people singing and these were not work songs. They would like sing to the songs or about the the, song, the stones rather, and they sang the stones into position. Well, that's that's kind of interesting. Does that suggest some kind of acoustical energies at work? But it's, I think that's fascinating that it's found in various parts of the world. Uh, I say Polynesia. They the early Christian missionaries when they came across some of these huge megalithic structures in Polynesia. And the Polynesians said that they were, were sung into position. I say I heard the same story repeated amongst the Oneida, Oneida Indians here in Wisconsin. So that's kind of interesting. And then you go to a place like, a fabulous place, like Newgrange in Ireland, outside of Dublin, in the Boyne Valley. And when you go in, which is, 
possibly the oldest building still standing in the world. That building has been reliably carbon dated to about 3,200 B.C. In other words, at least 100 years before Egypt was even founded, before the first dynasty of Egypt. Here you had this sophisticated, magnificent structure in Ireland, of all places, New Grange. And in New Grange, there's this corridor that you walk through. It goes to the heart of this great mound, this great stone mound. And when you go into this chamber, you can see it today, it's available to tourists, there are all these strange Neolithic carvings. Uh, some are like lozenges, others are spirals. There are versions of these various strange abstract designs. Uh, they're almost like emblems, but not quite. What could they possibly mean? Now, there was a study done in the late part of the 20th century with sound inside New Grange. And the reason why the acoustical engineers were interested was because there were some obvious acoustical um, qualities that seemed to have been built in, specifically with the arrangement of flagstones and so forth that bounced the sound around in an interesting way. And they were wondering, is this a matter of chance, or was this uh, obviously, or was this, in fact, deliberately put into the construction of Newgrange? And one of the things they did is they generated different sound frequencies. And at uh, 10 hertz sound, they found a rather strange thing, a vibrational sound created patterns in water. They had a basin of water, and that's interesting because... There are basins, Neolithic basins, that are still inside New Grange. Were they filled with water? Perhaps. But the acoustical engineers brought in these basins filled with water, and when they made these various sounds, right around 10 hertz, they were amazed to see that the patterns on the surface of the water were identical to the patterns that were carved into the stone at New Grange. They then tried another experiment in which, again, they ran 10 hertz inside New Grange, and they uh, boiled water. So you had steam, you had evaporation uh, uh, rising inside the chamber. And when they created this 10 hertz sound, the same patterns w would be made in the air. You could see the lozenges and the spirals and the variations of them be vibrating in the vapors. So... Obviously, was some reason why the ancients who created Newgrange understood that these sounds created these patterns and reproduced these patterns literally in the air or on basins of water. Isn't there a very similar phenomena that goes back to Stone Age times with regards to cave paintings and the locations of cave paintings corresponding to certain sounds being made in certain parts of the cave and forming certain shapes you know they they found cave paintings in odd tucked away locations within cave networks they why is it so high up on the wall across you know uh, an inaccessible right. place and they were then related when they did some sonic experiment and testing they, they found that there was a correspondence to the there's sort of like a sonic sweet spot or a series of them within these cave networks and the they cave paintings corresponded to that yes it's remarkable and they they mastered this acoustical drama that they could reproduce. Um, it was reproduced even in Malta, which is quite a distance away from New Grange. 
there's a, a place called House Seth, I can't, I don't know if I pronounce this properly. Hal Sefliani, is that correct? If I don't know if I pronounce it. Another one is Hal Hagar. And these are Neolithic sites on the island of Malta in the Mediterranean. And they are underground sites known as hypogeums. Hypogeum is an, an underground, a subterranean sacred temple. And the most beautiful of them all, the most modern looking and it's sparse design is this Hal Sefliani. I think that's how you pronounce it. And acoustical engineers have been busy inside this place as well and have found the same patterns reproduced by the acoustical properties that are at work in both House Afliani and Newgrange. So we're looking at, obviously, a phenomena that was not restricted to either Malta or Ireland that was pan-European to begin with. I believe it was pan-European to begin with. And then spread literally around the world because you find these places elsewhere and uh, it represents I think a very high order of spirituality in which you're able to combine science, art and religion into one great mystical experience I think that was I think that was the motive behind the creation of these places and their operation Well we've made many comparisons between the distant past and the present uh, throughout this talk and one thing I'm reminded of when we got on to talking about sound was a few modern mysteries and there's you cover two of these in the book and they're absolutely fascinating examples uh, in terms of construction and also in terms of or to use that phrase once again power places you know how doing a certain type of construction and a certain pattern can seem to imbue a building with certain qualities the two I'm referring to are Coral Castle uh, located in the US and also you know you can help me out here but the the house that is built by uh, a wealthy businessman pyramidal house and the story it's behind the gold pyramid house the gold yeah, well, pyramid house let's t- tell us something about both those sites because they're absolutely intriguing for all sorts of reasons they really are and um one of them they, they mentioned the first one you mentioned is Carl Castle and that was uh, built in the early and mid-20th uh, century by a, a frail little man from Latvia called Edward Leeds Kalnan. It's quite mysterious. It's, it's one of the, really one of the great mysteries of the 20th century. Uh, where this, what brought this man to America and how he learned all his craft and it's, it's unknown. Carl Castle, for those of our listeners that are not familiar with it, was built by this little old man. Uh, it's made of enormous blocks of coral. And as you quite imagine, coral is extremely difficult to work with. It's sharp, it's brittle, it's heavy, and he built an entire estate. That's what it is. It's called a castle, but it really resembles a kind of a mansion or open-air estate built entirely out of tons of coral blocks. How he cut them, how he moved them, how he aligned them, uh, no one has understood. When I visited Coral Castle some years ago, uh, they have a guest book, a very large guest book, actually several volumes, so that people can write their names in and they can also add anything they wish to say about the place. And I was looking over the guest book and I happened to find the signature of the man who was in charge of all of the uh, mo- uh, monumental 
architecture in Belgium. I do not remember his name. And he was a visitor there, and he said he enjoyed it very much. And he wrote, he said, how Coral Castle was made, hyphen, impossible. <laughs> is the man <laughs> who knows everything you can imagine about such a place and found it, it's impossible. Um, it, the place is just absolutely enigmatic. It's not just piles of stone. He did one thing that in there called a pelorus, and the pelorus is this, I believe it's about 20, 25 foot high tower made out of coral. It's more like an obelisk. And at the very top of this, like obelisk type of figure, there is a, a, a hole, a, a very circular uh, feature. And in the very center of this hole that you can see straight through is uh, kind of like a gun sight. It's a crosshairs. And if you sit in a particular chair that he had there, you will be able to look straight through this pelorus, as he called it. And the crosshairs go specifically on uh, the star Aldebaran. Why? <laughs> I have no idea. But to just have achieved that alone is... And this guy was alone. He had no machinery. He had no labor to help him. He was utterly alone, and he built this place over the course of some decades. The chairs there that he made are all out of coral, and they look very uncomfortable. But when you sit in them, they're enormously comfortable. They're like lounge chairs, and they're mostly rocking chairs. They will, will rock. How to explain this place? I don't have a clue. I visited it twice. I've come away mystified as the chief architect of Belgium was mystified how he built this. It's a megalithic site, no doubt about it. And uh, there it is. The other side, far north now, of course this was in Coral Castles in the south of Florida, Homestead, Florida. The other one is called the Gold Pyramid House. It was built by a construction engineer by the name of James Onan. He's still alive. He's an elderly man now. And the Gold Pyramid House um, is about 40 miles north of Chicago, a place called Wadsworth. And the Gold Pyramid House uh, is a perfect re downsized reproduction of Great Pyramid. And it's oriented to the four cardinal directions. Originally, it was coated with 24-carat gold plates. <clears throat> and it was the largest single gold object in the world for a number of years. Mr. Onan was forced to remove the gold plates after a while because it was found that the sun was reflecting uh, this brilliant gold light into the cockpits of various airplanes that would fly nearby and blind the pilots. <laughs> so unfortunately, that gold had to be removed. Um, but he was very interested in reproducing the exact um, uh, angles and dimensions of the Great Pyramid only on one-fifth of the scale. And a number of very bizarre things happened at that place, I can tell you, because I more than visited the Gold Pyramid House. I stayed overnight there several times, and I was a tour guide there for about a year or so. And that place, you could write a whole book on, on, the, Great, on the, the Gold Pyramid House. It's still there, although it suffered a very serious fire last year 
and I don't know how successful repairs are at that place, which is truly unfortunate. But um, that's a place, if you ever come to uh, Chicago, that's a place worth seeing, even in its uh, rather ruinous form now. It still is quite remarkable. Outside in front of the Gold Pyramid House is the largest freestanding uh, statue in the American Middle West. It's a, a pharaonic statue. It doesn't represent any particular pharaoh, but it's a, a beautifully done colossus. I think it stands about uh, 70 feet high. It's magnificent. And also nearby is a very accurate reproduction of the uh, tomb of King Tutankhamun. And uh, so it's not a, it, this is not really a tourist uh, trap at all. <clears throat> it's just a very interesting place that is still sometimes open to the public. Okay, Frank. Well, as we begin to bring things to a close for today, I just want to return to one of our overarching themes, which is what we might be able to learn from civilizations of the past. And that's all sorts of things, whether it's about construction techniques or about uh, human consciousness or about uh-huh. how best to conduct ourselves mm-hmm. uh, in our current society. I mentioned close to the top of the hour the, the myth or, or otherwise of Atlantis. And in some ways it's almost academic whether you think that Atlantis might have represented something real in the past and we can roll into this other stories about high civilizations such as Lemuria whatever it happens to be but whether there's any tangible reality to the to those stories or not I think at the very least that they represent an idea a theme uh, about the rise and fall of civilizations about golden ages and dark ages and whatever the causes of the decline or fall of civilizations happen to be, as I said, whether it's the fault of that civilization itself, whether it's conflict with other civilizations, or whether it's natural disaster or some combination. I think there's something that we can learn from that. And I think that the reason that Atlantis and these other stories persist uh, with us, and I include the Great Flood, the Deluge stories in those as well, is because... I think there is something to it. It may not just be as literal as often portrayed, but there's something there in terms of archetypes within the human psyche. And I think we we would disregard any and all of that at our peril. Yes, I, I can't agree with you more. I think that's the great utility of history, is that it, it has to reflect uh, our present time. We It has to uh, show us what we're doing which is either correct or incorrect, and opens up certain paths that we can we should follow, or it shows trends. I don't believe that history repeats itself, but I firmly believe that history runs in patterns and cycles. What this means is that every people has its own particular um, history, a way of doing things, which is unique from everybody else. However, they are nonetheless subject to certain cycles and changes, and um, it's important for us as historians to uh, recognize these patterns, these themes. Uh, I think that they can they can uh, act as guides for us. But it takes courage. It takes a great deal of courage to recognize these patterns and themes, because um, political points of view can be very uh, violent and hostile to certain interpretations. And that's why. I think uh, the freedom of speech and freedom of expression is is so vitally important. Uh, the freedom of speech uh, has to be protected 
and and has to be ensured so that all points of view can be heard and people should be allowed to sort things out on their own. But they can't sort out the right things if they're deprived of uh, particular information. And that's why it's it's vital that a show like yours is is still functioning and that we're, you and I are able to discuss these things and, and get them out for uh, people to understand. I think that you and I have uh, possibly greater influence than we realize because getting the truth out in a, a clear fashion like this uh, sets up repercussions that are beyond anything we can know. And that's why uh, I think a program such as yours is, is very important. Uh, well, thank you for that. But if Atlantis does represent perhaps a conflation of different stories or an amalgamation of them, then uh, but rep- does represent, as you say, you know, a, th- a theme, um, a thread, a trend, then the profusion of flood myths globally, not least of which is the biblical flood, the Ark and Noah and all the rest of it, I think I think they very clearly can represent something genuine and real because we know that uh, within relatively recent memory that sea level was much lower. When I'm thinking, I mean, for example, we talked about Karnak earlier in France and you talked about Ur grabbing on a peninsula. At one time, that would have been the sea level would have been maybe at least 30 feet lower. So that right. area would have looked very different. And we think also of Easter Island. There's a whole peninsula, a whole uh, archipelago of islands in that area, which at one time would simply have been the peaks of hills or mountains, whereas now they're all isolated islands. As much as people are ready to dismiss flood myths as, I don't know what, to be honest, because to me it seems very credible and logical. I think there's absolutely something to that. It makes sense uh, when one looks at the geography and the climate of the planet, how that changes. It's constantly changing. We are perhaps in a phase now where sea levels are will continue to rise, but that doesn't mean that will always be the case. So I think just to sort of dismiss the biblical flood story, for example, because it's part of those collected writings that we know as the Bible, it's just incredibly simplistic. No, you're absolutely correct. Uh, we lived on we live on a very dynamic planet in which sea levels amongst many other things are constantly in flux and changing. Uh, it's kind of astounding to realize that only 12,000 years ago, which uh, geologically is nothing, a blink of the eye, 12,000 years ago, sea levels were well over 300 feet lower than they are today. Can you imagine how the coastlines of every continent and island in the world would have been radically altered by dropping more than 300 feet and that it the uh, sea levels have only risen to their present levels in a very short time. We're talking worldwide now, not just in one particular part of the planet, but from 12,000, about 12,000 years ago to maybe at most... 3,000 years ago, sea levels rose more than 300 feet. Ah, That's astounding. Um, There's an area between England and France uh, that was was known as the Dodger Banks today. It's a relatively shallow area. It's almost a navigational hazard for uh, deep-keel vessels. And the Dodger Banks... Uh, and during this period before 12,000 years ago, was all dry land. So if you were to go back there, say at the end of the last ice age, when the last ice age was just ending, 
you would see this vast tract of land that literally connected Scotland with parts of Scandinavia and northern Europe, and that this vast tract of land was inhabited. There are numerous uh, pot shards and uh, metal implements that are being dredged up from that area of the Dodger Banks to this day, literally hundreds of artifacts. So that was occupied. Now, there's your Atlantis, if you want to look at it. There have actually been several Atlantises, places that are now underwater that were cultivated and perhaps the seat of high civilizations that were drowned, literally drowned by the natural processes of the earth itself. And, you know, skeptics say this is all ridiculous and fantasy, but it isn't. It's, it's geology, not fantasy at all. It's geophysics. And I think that some of these stories have continued in things that we know of, like Noah's story in the Old Testament. Of course, the Jews, they got that story. That wasn't invented by themselves. It was not even indigenous to their culture at all. When they were in uh, the Babylonian captivity, they heard the story of the flood from their captors, and they um, reworked it into the Hebrew tradition of the Old Testament. And that, that story of the flood goes back long before Noah was ever heard of. And like you say, it's known around the world. An interesting part of the flood myth is that it associates almost invariably, as far as I know, just about invariably, the flood is blamed on a people who sinned against their own nature or against the gods somehow. You find that story everywhere, from Micronesia all across North America and into uh, Europe and the Near East, into Asia. It's literally a worldwide story. So there's obviously something about it. And why is it that it's always uh, seems as though it was just punishment for a people that had made some uh, terrible error? Sometimes that error is explained pretty thoroughly by Plato, his famous story of Atlantis, that the Atlanteans had grown corrupt and that they had lost interest in their high values, their high ethics that made their civilization and became uh, self-indulgent and greed-obsessed, a very modern uh, version of it. I mean, if you look at Plato's story in the Timaeus and the Critias, it looks like reading a, a description of modern America or certainly the West today uh, it's it's a definitely a cautionary tale and you can make parallels can't you it's so easy to with uh, uh, our contemporary situation it's, and for some people it might sound fanciful, fanciful but for some people they've articulated the idea that we're somehow caught in some sort of cycle of sin and retribution and these are not necessarily just religious people but it's, no. it's almost like the human consciousness, our state of consciousness can be reflected in the events around us and that can become a vicious circle. In your own book, you cite the book by Art Bell and Whitley Strieber, The Coming Global Superstorm. Yeah. And uh, I can't help but see parallels between the cycles of the past that we've been talking about and where we are right now. And I think for all the same instincts that we have within us to reject any sort of parallels with the past. I think those are just another manifestation of what we've been talking about for a while now, which is like, we've got little or nothing to learn from the past. We've moved beyond that. This time it's different. Yeah. And we always like to think that. And of course, it 
can be embarrassing too. You know, you don't want to think like, oh my gosh, we're going down the same road uh, that these other past civilizations have uh, self-destructed. I think the great lesson of the story of Atlantis and the, and the uh, stories associated with it, the great flood found everywhere, is not that these that this early people was obliterated by some natural catastrophe, but rather they lacked the will or the cohesion to rebound from it. And that seems to be what they're they're talking about, is that yes, whether you're a, a successful civilization or one that's on the edge, uh, there, there will naturally be crises and difficulties. And it's up to that civilization to to recover from it with a, a spirit of community. But if that, that uh, basic spirit that built the society is no longer in existence, then those people become extinct. And I think that's what the... That's what they're trying to say. That's a very modern, uh, very up-to-date story. The reason why it's up-to-date is because it's an eternal story. Uh, if it's true today, it's it's been true always. And yeah, our, our, it's, it's kind of a warning, I think, to our own society. But I don't know what to what to make of it. I don't know what our leaders, uh, if you can call them that even, are even capable of understanding such a thing. And uh, we may just have to go the same course that these other lost civilizations uh, have gone through. Well, I think also, uh, I think human beings are like this in general, but I think some of our ancestors may have been less, somewhat less like this than us. They may have had a one eye on the bigger picture. I think we're just part of larger cycles here that sometimes are so vast that we cannot even perceive them or comprehend them. That's correct. Uh, and... We know them as golden ages and dark ages. We st- I'm thinking now of the cycles of civilization in the context of cosmic cycles. Uh-huh. You know, like, like procession for you, procession of the equinoxes, uh, the great year. These other ideas about how human consciousness is affected by cosmic influences. Because a lot of people think that, yes, the planets in our solar system orbit around the sun, but they forget that our entire solar system itself is moving around the galaxy itself yes. in a you know a period of time that takes millions of years. And as it moves through the galaxy, there are different levels of radiation uh, which affect everything. And we were this ties in earlier to what we were talking about, the power of stones, you know, the, the power that they're imbued with, the power that they emanate. This is all connected. And I think that we of course struggle in our short-term thinking, just looking a couple of yards ahead of us to the next thing, to tomorrow, to just surviving, or the plays, the short-term plays and thinking of a human life, which seems very long when you're young, but when you come towards the end of your life and you're facing death, you realize it's just a blink of an eye. And of course, we struggle. We struggle with these vast periods of tiny cycles. I mean, how, how can you even imagine the course of a human life set against the orbit of the solar system around the galaxy and that in, its, that in itself is far from being the biggest cycle in the universe we can appreciate these things but it i think our our duty is to be able to that it seems to me that the purpose of life is first of all to enjoy it naturally to enjoy life as much as possible but to do something significant and the most significant thing i think we can do is to contribute to our the positive aspects of our civilization. And that uh, when a civilization falls, it is never a pretty thing. And it is always a very 
painful and destructive thing. It's not just a change. The fall of the Roman Empire uh, engulfed the lives of uh, many hundreds of thousands, actually millions of people in uh, a dark age that persisted for centuries. And that's something that we risk today. I think our dark age that's coming, if it is to come, uh, will be far more inclusive than anything we've known. The reason why is because we as a people are more dependent upon our technology than any, any other previous people. And if we lose this technology, uh, we're going to really fall into darkness, uh, literally as as well as figuratively. So that, I think that's my major concern in studying in studying history and studying these greater uh, these greater proportions that you mentioned. Uh, it's it's wonderful to understand these things to put ourselves in place, but I would like to be able to see our civilization uh, go on. And uh, at this point, it's I think it's very deeply threatened. And the the fire we mentioned earlier at the beginning of our interview, I think that that is a symbolic um, act by those who per- perpetrated it. And I believe there were people that perpetrated that. And it's a symbolic uh, warning, I think, for the rest of us. It's something we shouldn't just let pass. I think it could be a wake-up call. At least I hope it is. When, when our most uh, sacred and uh, important structures are, are destroyed, that's uh, we had better do something immediately, or else we have to face the consequences. Well, many people today look around at humanity and cry in exasperation that we just appear to be absolutely insane, insanely self-destructive. And I think there's a connection here to the deep past, to, uh, say, beyond a time uh, when things become so hazy, we just don't know what happened. But I think that it, something lives on within us mm-hmm. that uh, we don't fully understand and we haven't fully integrated. But it, it's there almost like in our, somehow in our genetic material or in the, the those patterns that, that repeat throughout our societies. And I think it is connected with what Emmanuel Velikovsky was writing about earlier in the 20th century and uh, he was very much criticised for. And he was reflecting again earlier, researchers mm. and thinkers, and what currently someone like Graham Hancock has been writing a great deal about, that it may be, and this ties in with Atlantis and many of the things we've been talking about, that something terrible caused by ourselves or from outside Something terrible happened to our species and the planet in general in the past, maybe more than once, but at least once. And we're still trying and probably failing to recover from that. And that may explain our pathological tendencies and the absolute illogic of some of our behavior towards ourselves and the, the ecosystems that, uh, that support us. Yeah, we have, it's not just illogical, our behavior as a species, it's suicidal. That's the that's the real thing. It's okay to be illogical a lot of times. I know I am more often than I would like to think, but um, to be suicidal that is that's the the serious point, and uh, that's uh, something that we need to uh, be aware of today, and uh, hopefully emphasize our, our life giving uh, instincts. But uh, I'm I'm very glad for this opportunity to discuss these things with you. And I, I hope that our listeners find it as, as interesting as we have. 
Frank, today we've been discussing lots of ideas, many of them spinning off uh, from your latest book, uh, a collection of writings, uh, magazine articles, and the book's entitled Power Places and the Master Builders of Antiquity. Uh, that's widely available. Is there anything else you'd like to share with listeners, details of a website or any other resources? Uh, well, uh, they can uh, see uh, my other books that are at Amazon.com. They can uh, type my name in, my keyboard my name in at Amazon.com. And that's probably the best way to uh, not only uh, see all of the books that I've written. I've written quite a few. Uh, there should be about 30 or so up there. And then they can, uh, if they want to, they can order some of those. And I'm sure they will be able to discuss them uh, in the future again at, a, at another program. At least I certainly hope so. Splendid. Well, once again, Frank, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you so much, Greg. I I enjoyed our discussion very much.